dark and dusty drapes Let in some light Tell the bellboy come and get my trunk Cause I'm leaving here tonight Hey everybody, welcome back to a new episode of Meryl Streep and the Movies with Zachary Scott Johnson and Meryl McNally. Meryl Streep and the movies. We are the one podcast that will talk about both people. Some podcasts out there will talk about one. We dare to talk about them both. I just finished telling Meryl I was feeling punchy and a little odd today. (laughs) Anybody who this is their first episode is probably going to listen to no more. But how are you today, Meryl McNally? I'm good. This is, yeah, it's an unusually punchy beginning. (laughs) <laughs> I feel like I've been uh, intentional in not looking to see if there are other people out there doing the same thing that we're doing. I'm not looking at that on purpose. Um, and I bring that up because I have been watching my fair share of Nick Cage movies <laughs> recently. And mm-hmm. you would not believe how many podcasts there are, Nick Cage podcasts that are doing what we do, where they go through you know, his entire body of work. There's like seven or eight of them. Wow. Yeah. I feel like Meryl Streep should have more if yeah. that's the case. Although, I don't know, Nick Nick Cage is pretty fantastic podcast fodder. <laughs> well, that I think that's why, is his movies are so strange. And so, I mean, like, you could talk about those movies for, uh, especially the last decade, the last 15 years, it's just, holy cow. Um, and he keeps pumping them out. You know, he's pumping out like three, four, five, sometimes even more than that, like straight to DVD movies. It's yeah. crazy, his output. But um, anyway, that was a side sidebar. But how are you today, Meryl? What have you been up to? Um, oh my gosh, what have I been up to? Um, wrapping up schoolwork for, mm-hmm. uh, the semester and my program. I'm done with classes. Congratulations. Woo-hoo. Thank you. I still have a thesis to write, but so, so that's exciting. Um, I've been <laughs> going back to my country roots and have been helping my dad brand cattle, which is so strange like it's just a lesson that it it didn't take long for me to become just totally city-fied <laughs> I am a city girl I am not used to the dirt and the cows I wouldn't be either <laughs> uh, it's an adventure um but I've I've had fun so you know just living my best quarantine life how about you yeah, I'm I'm doing just fine. You know, I'm settling into whatever the heck this is. You know, whatever this quarantine life is, it's you know, at this point we've we've had some time to get used to it, and it is what it is. So it's this is our second day here of the COVID nineteen challenge where we're trying to do five five movies in five days and release them. And um, so I we probably this first segment of have you been watching anything will probably be light over these episodes because we won't really have had much time to watch anything else. But have you watched anything besides the Manchurian candidate, which is what we're here to talk about? No, (laughs) I haven't. I did watch half of, I did a blast from the past and watched um, half of the secret garden with 
with my nephews and my niece. Um, and it's one of my favorites. 1993. Mm -hmm. Maggie Smith. Yeah. So good. I remember that one from when, you know, when we were younger. Yeah, it's really sweet. And then in the process discovered that they're remaking it with um, Colin Firth uh, as the uncle and Julie Walters as as the housekeeper. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I like Julie Walters. Well, I like Colin Firth too, but. Yeah, I can't remember who's directing it, but um, I was ex excited. It looks really sweet. It looks like they did a good job with it. Nice. Nice. Um, I wanted to, I don't know why this is um, reminding me that, okay, so the last movie that we did was Rob Marshall, and I meant to mention that, did I say that sentence correctly? I meant to mention, that's a weird sentence, wow. Um <laughs> I meant to mention that his next movie is the live action Little Mermaid that they're doing, or it's mostly CGI or something. It's computer generated, mixed with live action. Like I assume, kind of similar to how they did the Lion King. Maybe was the, is this the version that had the casting controversy? Yes. yes. Although I don't really. I mean, it's a uh, it's a young woman of color playing Ariel. I don't understand what. I, it's actually, that's a terrible way to phrase it. It is not a casting controversy. People just got twisted up over nothing because it's excellent casting. Right. Yeah. yeah. So speaking of casting, I meant to um, mention this last time. And there are a lot of people who expressed an interest in being in this movie. And in the IMDb trivia, again, who knows, true or false, but it's one of the one of the entries in there says Lindsay Lohan and Chris Evans expressed interest in playing Ariel and Prince Eric. And Lohan even wanted Meryl Streep as Ursula. Oh, yeah, it's very fascinating. So for a while, Chris Evans was on the musical train. He has he can tap dance. From what I've heard, he can sing. And he several times has said openly that he would like to be, sorry if you can hear the doorbell. Um, I think it must be a small child because they've rung it three times. <laughs> um, um, he says he would like to be in a musical and he said it openly. And mm -hmm. then in his most recent profile interview, he got super defensive about it. Hmm. Because somebody asked him, so I don't know what's going on with him. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. And you know, Lindsay Lohan wanting um, Meryl as Ursula doesn't necessarily mean, but it is, you know, directed by Rob Marshall, who's now worked with her twice. Um, you know, in Into the Woods and Mary Poppins Returns, uh, Melissa McCarthy has been cast in that role. So it's not, you know, there's no chance that Meryl. Right. Well, I shouldn't say no chance. Things happen all the time, but. Um, uh, Audra McDonald apparently expressed an interest. Lady Gaga was rumored to be playing it for a while. Um, it also says in IMDb that Kathleen Turner turned down the role of Ursula, which to me is really interesting, that idea of Kathleen Turner as, as Ursula. Yeah. But this this is another one that like a lot of people went for. Maya Hawke uh, wanted to be Ariel um, Zendaya and Jane Levy, who's on that, uh, uh, what is the name of that show? Zoe's playlist or whatever that show is that she's on right now. She's the lead in that one. So, you know, a lot of people were going hard at this, at this movie here. Um, anyway, yeah, I mentioned um, it last time. The actor who's playing Prince Eric in it, Jonah Howard King, I am watching, I take it back. I have watched something. 
Um, I've been watching uh, World on Fire, which is uh, the masterpiece, the PBS masterpiece newest show on with Helen Hunt about oh, nice. uh, World War II. Yeah, he's very charming. He'd make a great Prince Eric. Speaking of Helen Hunt, I I heard recently that there's a movie that she's uh, like a thriller on Amazon Prime that she's the lead in called, I think it's called I See You. That's supposed to be really good. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm just going off of uh, other people saying that. I haven't, I haven't watched it yet, but I've been meaning to. But um, I haven't really watched anything either. But what I've been going kind of back to, it's, I think we're all doing that, like kind of reverting back to some old, like classic favorite things right now. Yeah. And I'm kind of slowly but surely making my way through two things. One is uh, Seinfeld, just like rewatching episodes of Seinfeld. And the reason I bring that up is I've noticed that within a span of, I don't know, maybe a dozen episodes, there's been at least three or four Meryl Streep references. Really? Constantly. Um, <laughs> There was there was the infamous. Did you watch that show? Are you familiar enough with like each of the episodes, or is it just one that you've seen a few episodes of? Seinfeld. Yeah. Oh God, we watched Seinfeld religiously when I was growing up, but I haven't revisited it in ages. But I know the characters really well. Because I just watched the episode where um, Elaine is they're they're stuck at a party in Long Island, and Elaine is really bored, and she does the maybe a dingo ate your baby. Do you remember that thing? <laughs> yes. which, I completely forgot. That's amazing. <laughs> which actually, that movie um, was not very big here, especially at the time. Like, people didn't really know that. So actually, Seinfeld doing that was a big, like, boon to that movie because a lot of people missed that movie. That's an Australian movie, and it did – people, Americans, didn't really know that story. You know, it's a very Australian thing. And so, like, people here didn't really understand. They just kind of knew – that line a little bit, which by the way is misquoted. She doesn't say a dingo ate my baby. She says a dingo took my baby in the movie. You know, I have a distinct memory of you and I standing outside on Lawrence campus. I was actually telling one of our listeners this, Cody. (laughs) I have a memory of us standing outside doing the dingo took my baby. Oh really? Bonding moment for you and I. Were we just shouting it at people? (laughs) I think you said it first, and I immediately got the joke and um, proceeded to do it as well. It was was one of the major bonding moments over Meryl Streep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Seinfeld is chock full of them. There was a great... um, it was, this is a subtle one, but given our recent history with this particular one, I, I found it really funny. There was another episode where Jerry is dating a woman who has a really obnoxious laugh. And so, of course, he's a comedian and that, you know, kind of bothers him. And so he, they're, they're at his apartment and I can't remember the name of the movie. They turn on the TV and she says, oh, I think you know, whatever movie, some comedy. And she goes, I love that movie. And he goes, you know what? Switch it to channel six. I think Holocaust is on. (laughs) I remember that episode. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Meryl's everywhere. Yeah. Well, and then the, the one that I'm, that I most recently watched, she's probably most heavily kind of referenced in. It's the one where Jerry finds out that when he and Elaine had been dating, she had been faking orgasms. And so he says, 
he says, oh, she's like Meryl Streep, this woman. She was so good. She was selling it. And then, you know, they're trying to be friends. And she says, oh, do you want to go see that new Meryl Streep movie? And he goes, oh, she's such a phony baloney. You know, he's trying to he's upset now because he associates her with Meryl Streep. Uh, but there's I mean, there's a ton of references to her. It just within like a dozen episodes. I, I was surprised. That's amazing. Yeah. So I've been watching that. And then I've been watching. Um, have you ever watched the TV show, The Goldbergs? You know what? I've seen an episode or two. It's super charming. Yeah. I it's like in season six or seven now. And I feel like I had seen occasional episodes in the first season and I really loved it. And so I decided I'm going to like, you know, start at the beginning on Hulu and, and go through first two seasons are really great. Season three, um, the young boy who is, you know, kind of like the focal point of the whole thing. Um, it, his voice changes and it's, it's definitely in the awkward stages right now. Um, I'm curious about like seasons you know, five, six, seven. I think they're in season six or seven now. They've been going for a while. Um, oh, oh, they're they're at the end of season seven. So they've been going a while. So I'm curious about these later episodes. But I have to say, the mother on that show, Wendy McClendon Covey from Bridesmaids and um, Reno 911, and people would know her from a lot of different things. I can't believe she hasn't been nominated for an Emmy for that show. She is incredible on that show. She's so funny. It's really fascinating what gets traction and what doesn't. And honestly, I forget network television exists. Right. So much of it, like if you, I honestly watch mainly um, uh, cable Mm -hmm. and premiere television. And I can't remember the last time I watched a network show. But I think it just kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Which is sad. It is. The other one I would I, I feel that way about right now is um if, if you ever watch Good Girls, that show I think it's on Sundays, yeah. but Reddas obsessed with Good Girls and like binge watched the seasons that were available. Mm-hmm. They just wrapped up season three, and I think Retta this season is another one who I don't understand why she hasn't been nominated. But the, I don't think she stands a chance too. It's just so um, it's so like cable heavy and HBO and Amazon. So a- shows on ABC and NBC don't really stand much of a chance anymore, which is funny. I almost feel like there should be separate categories for network and cable because the the episode requirements, the the format, it's just so wildly different. Yeah. It has to be more episodic and serial. And, you know, usually there's a standalone plot in those episodes um, with, like, you know, a minimal amount of through line. Yeah. It's just yeah. very different. No, I'm I'm with you. I, I agree. I think it would be helpful. I mean, like, it's always interesting to um, have more categories for things like that anyway, because, you know. There's just every year there's so many people who really should be nominated that that aren't. And I mean, there's just as we've talked about, you know, incessantly over the last year, like television is far more interesting than movies right now. Like it's just where the interesting stuff is. And there's interesting content being made everywhere. And it's like impossible to keep up with it, even as as viewers, like, you know, there's there's only so much time in the day and you can't watch everything that, you know, is being made that's good. Yeah, no. 
Definitely not. And I don't know about you. Are you finding, like, I don't have the mental energy to watch too many new things during quarantine. I have plenty of time, but I find myself, like, going back to films I've watched before or repeat watching television shows I've already seen because it requires minimal brain power and I can step away from it if I need to. Yeah. Like I just don't have the capacity to get sucked into a, a new story. Yeah. I have, I, I get that. I, I'm kind of always a repeat uh, person. There are things that I just watch over and over again. You know, I don't, I wouldn't say that I'm, I'm like at capacity in terms of new stuff. I'm just weird in the way of, um, like we're trying right now to get through both Ozark and the Americans that show with, uh, but those that shows. Combo? <laughs> well, yeah, but see, that's the thing is like, it's too much to take them on both at the same time. And they're also surprisingly similar to each other in like terms of tone and, you know, like just kind of overall mood. They're very um, intense in kind of the same way. And um, so I, the idea of like adding, adding anything else on top of that doesn't really work. And there's only, I mean, like those shows are both, so they're both great shows and they're both, you know, just really well done, but they're also on the depressing side, you know, where like you don't want to watch four episodes in a row. It's too much. So, you know, you balance that out with like Seinfeld or the Goldbergs or something like that where you really don't have to think at all. Um, and it's just enjoyment, you know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there are a handful of shows that I'm so glad I watched on a week to week basis. And I've actually gone back and like rewatched them in more of a binge format and found it nearly impossible and really? it was real. They all sort of coexisted together. Breaking Bad was one of them. Mad Men. Um, the Americans is in that category for sure. I watched them weekly. I'm so glad because I've gone back and tried to watch. You can't do really more than two episodes. It really messes with you. Yeah. That's dark. I have a hard time though with some of those. I would have a hard time, I think. Um, I, with Breaking Bad was a good example of this. I intentionally waited until that show was over to watch it, knowing full well I was going to love it, knowing those five years or six years or whatever, when everybody was talking about it, I yeah. knew I was going to love it. But I also knew it would, I was just the kind of person who like watching the whole thing rather than waiting because I don't know, there's something about like Homeland I've done that with where like I've tried to wait in between seasons. And then by the time I get to the next season, I'm just not as interested because it's been six months since the last one. I struggle with that too, especially if I, you know, like a show will come out on Netflix and I'll binge that one season. This happens with Peaky Blinders. Love Peaky Blinders, but it's so long for the next season to come out. And then I truly can't remember what I watched. And I'm so detached from it at that point. Right. That, yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem with binging. Yeah. There's really only one show, I think, that I actually watch consistently from week to week, which is another actually network sitcom called Superstore. I don't know if you ever watched Superstore. Um, Never have. I mean, I know what it is. America Ferrera, right? Yeah, 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 although she is leaving the show. But um, that's another one. If you are at all a fan of The Office, it's kind of like The Office if it were set in uh, like a Walmart kind of thing. Um, you know, like eccentric characters and, 
you know, it's really, really accessible. It's really like, uh, it's really well done. I love it. it. But see, the characters are so defined. They're almost archetypes. Actually, they probably are archetypes. Like it's probably like Commedia dell'arte, like archetypes of characters, which makes it like you don't have to feel like you're missing anything from week to week. Um, there just aren't enough of those shows, I feel like right now, that are actually worth watching and that's the other thing too so like i i gave um edie falco had this mid-season replacement show called tommy which was like somewhere in the law and order adjacent universe it was like made by the same people and um you know they gave it 12 episodes or whatever and then cut it you know like they just give up on everything right away too i don't know i feel like you kind of got to make sure this the show's going to last a couple years before you even bother at this point and then of course that's the catch-22 is if not enough people are paying attention you know but i don't know it's hard to get invested in something right now because they just cut you know like mercilessly at this point so yes Well, shall we move on? That was actually way longer than I thought we'd be able to talk about other stuff today, considering how recently. You can always talk about other stuff. That it's endless. It is. Um, there is some Merrill news, uh, which we did talk about briefly before we started. But um, we, there is a there is an article out right now saying Damien Chazelle um, is casting for his next movie, which is going to be called Babylon. Um, it's set in the 1920s and is about the rise and fall. I'm just going to read this directly from FullCircleCinema.com, so I want to give them credit. Um, it says it's set in the 1920s Hollywood and follows the rise and fall of various real and fictional characters as the film industry transi- transitions into the sound era of talkies. So a few months ago, Emma Stone and Brad Pitt um, started negotiations for for the leading roles, and now Meryl Streep, Michael B. Jordan, and Tobey Maguire look to be joining that um, cast. So we talked just a little bit before we started filming about this. I like this idea a lot. I like the idea of her uh, being in a Damien Chazelle movie. Uh, I like the other folks involved for the most part. Um, you know, so I think this has some potential. Oh, I think so too. I think it sounds great. Yeah. For for any story about old Hollywood, though, too. This seems like a, uh, you know, award season contender, at least on paper, doesn't it? Damien Chazelle, Brad Pitt, Emma Stone, Meryl Streep. I mean, basically, Meryl Streep in anything is award spotter. Right. (laughs) But yeah, most definitely. I'm interested. I'm really interested to see a Damien Chazelle, Chazelle, Meryl Streep uh, collaboration. I think that would be very cool. We were we were talking too, you know. Again, before it started, uh, I was mentioning that I, I find it interesting that between this uh, this Steven Soderbergh movies, which she's done two, you know, she's doing a Ryan Murphy project right now. Seems like she's working with a lot of um, the younger guys, also also women. You know, she just did a Greta Gerwig movie. Um, she's worked with Felita Lloyd a few times recently, and. Um, Nora Ephron and uh, so you know Nancy Myers so she's it's you know we were talking about the the gender disparity in, in directors and I feel like she's cut a pretty even you know 50 mm-hmm. 50 mark within the last decade um, but yeah she's with these last few projects she's working with the young young guys I'm throwing Steven Soderbergh in the young guys category which may be a little bit generous but he's not that <laughs> young anymore but you know um yeah, it, 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 I don't know. It'll be interesting to see her work on this. I think this has some great potential. So I guess that's all we know about it right now. Yeah. 
I would love to see her work. We talked about this before, but I would love to see her work with Ava DuVernay. Right. Uh, outside of Ava DuVernay, I was just going to ask, is there a director that you can think of that she hasn't worked with who you'd like her to work with? I would love her to work with Joe Wright. He did okay. Pride and Prejudice. And, yeah. Uh, he did and all of here in Nightly ones, didn't he? Didn't he do Atonement, too? And Yeah. Um, let's see. Was there anything else we were going to talk about before diving into the Manchurian Candidate? No, let's do it. All right. So... 2004. We are here to talk about the 2004 uh, remake of The Manchurian Candidate, uh, directed by Jonathan Demme, starring uh, Denzel Washington, Liev Schreiber. Is it Liev? Liev Schreiber. Liev Schreiber. Meryl Streep, Kimberly Elise, uh, John Voight, Jeffrey Wright. Um, And everyone else in Hollywood, sweet Jesus. This movie is a smorgasbord of cameos. Yeah. And good ones, too. They actually, I listened to the uh, commentary and they kind of went, you know, the director and the and the film editor went through it and they kind of referenced the different people who were in it. And, you know, Jonathan Demme, of course, had directed Silence of the Lambs in Philadelphia and a bunch of other like very big movies. This was a big movie with Denzel Washington and Meryl Streep. Um, so there were a lot of people who just were willing to take scenes, you know, like one days of work, one day of work on this, uh, you know, rather than, you know, it's a much smaller role than they would normally take just to kind of be on that scene. So, um, yeah, should we start with the synopsis before we dive in too much? Sure. So, um... (laughs) This is a tough one. Yeah. uh, Well, it's set in present day, but present day is 2004-ish. Right. And, um... um, No, it starts in the flashback of Kuwait, right? Right, yeah. it's present day, but it also has a lot of flashback to like the the Persian Gulf War. Yeah, so we find out that Denzel Washington was um, I can't remember his ranking. Can you? Yeah, he was he was Captain, Captain. Ben Marco. Yes, Captain Ben Marco of of a unit in Kuwait, and they are ambushed one night, and. Um, come out of that ambush believing that Lieb Schreiber, who is now a politician and um, the VP nominee, um, he comes out of that situation a a war hero with the Medal of Honor. And that's the story that the entire unit knows and says. And then over time, you realize that they've been brainwashed. And that there are mental experiments happening and a major corporate conspiracy with a company called Manchurian Global. Should I give any more away? Um, So I think the only other kind of key point um, in regards to this podcast is that Meryl Streep plays uh, the mother of Liev Schreiber's character. Good call. She's a senator. That's sort of important for this podcast. She plays a, a, a sort of long-standing and prominent political figure. Yeah. One of the things that is slightly confusing, I think, is I am under the impression, and I could be wrong, I think she plays a conservative senator. I honestly couldn't tell. Okay. I thought that was the implication, was that she was a conservative senator and yet was pushing her 
pretty liberal son to be the VP choice, which that's one of the, I think, overall like questions. But maybe I'm wrong on that. There was there was some moment and I can't remember what it was that made me think that they were kind of pointing at that. And that was one of the things I was kind of confused about was why she would be pushing so hard uh, for her son if they believed very differently. There is some cut footage where she is interviewed by Al Franken. Uh, they use just a snippet of it in the movie, but on the DVD, there are a couple of deleted scenes of her being interviewed, you know, by, um, you know, fake correspondents and also Al Franken, who was at the time a, an actual correspondent um, and talking about, um, her and her son not always believing uh, or agreeing on everything, but believing that they had the best interests of the country at heart. And I think that was the moment that I thought, oh, okay, wait, they're not even part of the same political component. So I don't know, but I might've misread that. No, there is a piece of that in the film, that that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's the only thing that sort of pointed to what side of the fence. I feel like this film went out of its way not to identify political parties. Like all of the all of the campaign material is like bleeding both red and blue and you can't they really go out of their way to avoid at least I felt like it did. Yeah. I guess I was probably projecting you know, based on kind of what I assume. A lot of it is like the war machine. And I would say one side is very much more war machine than the other. Um, and yeah. it felt it felt like there were elements of that that were in there pretty strong. Um, there, there was an interesting thing that happened in this movie, which was that they had wrapped principal photography and they were, I think, about six weeks from this movie coming out, something like that, they said. And then we have invaded Iraq. And so like that whole war element to this movie was then kind of like without intention kind of amped up. And that alone, like given, I mean, I say that this film avoids identifying political parties, but the truth is that given when it came out and who was on what side of that, I don't think it was hard to draw the connections. And I do think that your assumption is not just a projection. I think that's quite accurate based on the way she's portrayed. I mean, she's very, she's very much portrayed as old guard. Right. Yeah. And yet a lot of people assumed that she was basing this character on Hillary Clinton, which she went out of her way to, um, kind of, uh, argue against saying that she used a lot of different, uh, male uh, character, ma real life male um, politicians and even directors as uh, kind of her uh, reference point rather than rather than Hillary. But I don't think, you know, it was kind of the haircut and the pantsuits and all of that. Like it wasn't hard to see some parallels for sure. Yeah, it was the visual parallel. And the truth is most female politicians dress like that. Right. <laughs> I mean, um, Hillary Clinton just happened to be the most prominent one. Yeah. Yeah. And I think they're, they're kind of tied together anyway, as their friends in real life. So I think that's part of it, you know? So, yeah. um, anyway, I am curious, we've, we've gone, uh, you know, a while into this and I don't know, how did you feel about this movie? Um, the movie itself is totally serviceable. Mm-hmm. I really love Jonathan Demme's direction, which is not surprising. Um, and I, I just, 
I love Denzel Washington. I, I, for, I just forget how good he is. He's so good. <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. It's The film is a little choppy. Um, it's I can I couldn't ever quite get in the flow of it. Part of that was the editing, um, and that may have been on purpose to sort of mirror that sort of mind, that weird glitchy mind that is a theme, you know, because they've been brainwashed. I don't know. What did you think? I love this movie. <laughs> I love this movie. I distinctly remember seeing this in the theater with my father. We go, um, you know, I haven't lived in the same, uh, I haven't lived in my hometown for 12 years now, but, um, you know, when we're, when we are together and certainly when I did live there, uh, we would always go see really anything Denzel was in. We would always go see, I remember seeing a lot of Denzel Washington movies with him in the theater. And this was one of them. And, um, yeah, there is something about this movie for sure that is a little bit. Um, I don't. I I have a hard time thinking. It's not a perfect movie by any means. There are things about this movie that don't work completely. But there's also something about it. I think it's mostly Meryl's performance. This is just one of my favorite performances of her. She owns the screen in a way that I just love watching. And um, it's also a really interesting role for Denzel Washington. He's somebody who we've talked about this before. If I was going to do a podcast about a male movie star, it would probably be Denzel Washington. And that podcast has been done, you know, but I would like to do a tribute episode on Denzel. I know this is a, a podcast dedicated to brilliant female actresses, but I I think Denzel deserves a tribute episode. I'm all for it. I, he's another one who I've seen, I think, every movie he's made. Um, but this is in his body of work. Actually, I was trying to think of this earlier. I was trying to think of if there was another movie where he has been so understated because there's no, you know, like when you hire Denzel Washington for your movie, you want that swagger, that over the top, like badassery that he yep. is so good at, right? He can own the screen. Pelican brief. Yeah, he is kind of understated in that, I guess. Well, no, I mean, he's got that swagger in that one. Oh, he's, I mean, like, I when I think of him, I think of, like, Training Day. I think of American Gangster. I think of, like, you know, him over the top, big, you know? Yeah. And I was trying to think of another movie of his where he is so understated. And the only one I can really think of off the top of my head, I'm sure there are others, is the other movie he did with Jonathan Demme, which is Philadelphia. Oh, so good. So something about him working with Jonathan Demi, he kind of tones it down a little bit, I guess. But he doesn't do that very often. And this is the most, um, it's, I, I mean, it's because of the character that he's playing. But like that confidence that we know Denzel Washington to have is like gone. It's not part of this character. And I like seeing him like that because I haven't seen him like that very much. You know, like it's an interesting side of him um you know he just he he has confidence in his beliefs like he knows that something is wrong and he pursues that but he doesn't kind of um he doesn't really yell from the rooftops or anything you know he doesn't have any scene where he where he just like starts chewing the scenery you know he's so good jonathan demi made this choice in this film which i love 
to do these tight shots of the actor's face head on. Right. And so you can just see every minute emotion that's going on on the actor's faces. And brilliant actors like Jeffrey Wright and Denzel Washington and Meryl Streep, they're Liev Schreiber, they're just so perfect for that kind of work. Because it's yeah. all, it's just all, oh, it's so good. Like those close-ups on Denzel's face. You yep. just see all of the emotions happening. It's brilliant. It's all subjective point of view. And it's the camera's just a little bit too close. So yep. you feel uncomfortable. It feels okay. like a weird, it feels like when somebody's standing just a little too close to you, you know, and like you want to take a step back and yet you feel like if I do that, then they're going to be offended by that. Or like, you know what I'm talking about? If somebody's standing just a little too close to you, you just want to like, okay, I need six this weird anxiety that that any moment the actor is going to look directly into the camera like that's how close it is right. like look at you and you're like Ooh. Yeah. yeah yeah um yeah it's and and some of the uh i guess i don't know if we, this this one isn't maybe one that we need to go through chronologically just because it's kind of all over the place anyway but yeah. um like there are some really intense scenes with the mind control where they actually have these, uh, you know, these guys kill each other in pretty yeah, brutal flashbacks. ways. Yeah, yeah. In these flashbacks, they show them killing each other um, as you know, part of this mind control um, thing. I don't know. It's just a really interesting movie. So, are you a fan of the original, the nineteen sixty? I want to say two, Manchurian Canada. You know what? I have to say that I've never seen the original in oh. its entirety. Okay. Uh -huh. And it's been some time since I've seen even portions of it. And I really, I will say that I really wanted to go watch it before this, before we did this recording, which I did not get a chance to do. Um, but I, I do remember Angela Lansbury being quite terrifying. Yeah. Have you uh, seen it? Yeah, but it's been a while. I did have kind of hopes of kind of revisiting it um it's quite different i mean they uh, yeah. there again i i don't mean to keep referencing the dvd like extras on there but they they do a nice job of explaining kind of like the differences that they made like the the conscious choices that they made to differentiate this version yeah. um frank sinatra was in the old one and this movie is produced by his daughter tina sinatra and scott rudin who is a major producer on broadway yeah yeah. And um, so there were a couple choices that like when they decided to remake this, um, there were a couple things that she wanted um, as part of it. She wanted that uh, the, the Meryl role, the Angela Lansbury role to be a little bit more of like a power player in this movie, mm -hmm. like somebody who is kind of established uh, within uh, within the political system. Uh, and there are a couple other choices that she made that I thought were interesting, like minor things, but that love interest character, Vera Farmiga, who's, you know, only in this for a few scenes in the original, he's uh, kind of, uh, he's pursuing her a little bit more where in this one, he's not really pursuing her. He's just kind of fixated on this thing that happened a long time ago between them, but he's not really actively pursuing her. Um, and so then when he ends up killing her father and her, it plays just a little bit different because he's not um, he's not shooting, which is how it happened in the original movie. I think I think he shot them instead of drowned them. Um, 
he's not shooting his love interest. He's drowning somebody who he's still kind of hung up on. Yeah. Yeah. That's a big difference. Yeah. Um, yeah, this this movie, like you say, is just chock full of, you know, you got John Voight to do like four scenes yeah. in this movie, you know? Gail King. Yeah. <laughs> um, Pablo Schreiber. Yep. He's got a tiny part, Liam's brother. Yep. Um, there's so many people. I'm trying to think who else. There's this. Obviously. There's, yeah, Al Franken is, has an interesting little cameo. The, um, there is a right in the beginning in those like early flashback uh, battle scenes that happen while the credits are playing. Um, there's a singer songwriter by the name of Robin Hitchcock who is uh, kind of writing shotgun with, with Denzel, but he's, he's been in a few movies, but he's better known as a musician probably. Um, there are just people like that, like old yeah, character Anthony actors. Mackie, young yeah. Anthony Mackie. Yeah. There are, it, like in those scenes, uh, basically all the scenes at Merrill's in where she's talking to like, you know, the, the room of advisors and she's talking to, you know, the other senators, like all those dudes, for the most part, they're dudes. All those dudes are like every one of them is a good character actor who you've seen in a bunch That's of stuff. Dean Stockwell. Oh, did you see Anne Dowd? I didn't. She is, um, when they call Meryl Streep into the room to tell her that they've picked John Voight's character for the VP instead of her son, and Anne Dowd is one of the women in the room, and she says she has one line where she's like, oh, come on. And I was like, Anne Dowd! I did not pick up on that. I like Anne Dowd a lot. Yeah, she's amazing. Um, that is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, actually. There, you know... Even Meryl really doesn't have that many actual scenes in this movie. She's probably in eight scenes, maybe something like that. But there's something about, you know, the way that she owns every single one of them. But that, I think, is maybe the first one that she has that kind of strong uh, alpha energy. Yeah. You know, where she's just kind of like, just, I mean, she walked into this room where there was a consensus that they were going to pick John Voight for the VP. This is also something that this is one of the few things I don't want to pick apart this movie because I like it. But there are a yeah. few things in this movie that don't really hold up. One of which is this is the night before the convention and she manages to walk into the room and change who they're going to pick for vice president. Yeah. That seems like a choice. I, I don't know. That seems like just a really, it would have been so easy to make it not the night before, like even make it a week before or something, you know? Um, I, so that is, I think, one kind of questionable thing in the in the script here. But um, so the night before the uh, convention, we don't know if it's the Republican convention or the Democrat convention, they swap out, uh, you know, the, the VP pick because she she talks about the electability of her son and what she's willing to do. Uh, you know, basically she'll, she'll, she'll raise a lot of hell for the party and, uh, risk, uh, you know, the, the kind of undoing of the party. If it, if it comes down to that. Yeah. She's terrifying in that scene. And it's quite terrifying in the whole movie. Yeah. So you, usually you see Meryl Streep when she's playing quote a villain, it's, you know, so say like her, not really a villain, but like her character in Death Becomes Her. Like she really leans into the comedy of that. And so it's over, it's over the top, right? Her villainy can be quite over the top. But this 
this is just something else. And you know what it is? It's in her silence. Yeah. She's, I, I mean, she's scary enough when she is interacting with people, but her facial expressions in this film make me want to run for the hills. She's so terrifying. It's so good. It's so good. I think part of it is also the darker hair because it makes her eyes pop more. Yep. The, those hard looks she gives, I just, oof, they're deadly. They're amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the things that I thought was interesting in terms of like, you know, building your character and all of that was, again, she was interviewed. They were all interviewed on the, on the extras for the DVD. And she, at one point says that her character is not the villain. She, she was very expressly thinking that she viewed uh, Manchurian global as the villain, but not her character. Which makes sense as an actor. And this is why she's so compelling because you could tell that she was committing to not to sound like this is such an actor thing to say, but she was committing to the truth of her character. Right. And yeah. that's what made it so compelling because she believed she was right in every wrong thing she was doing. And it didn't matter. Right. Um, that's what makes her so terrifying because you can tell that she believes it. Right. And to, that's exactly what I was going to say, actually. And it's the same thing. I mean, this is this is a bit of a reach. And this is also maybe like a really big statement, almost maybe too far. But like in some ways, it's the same way that like terrorists believe that what they're doing is right, that like it is what the choice that they're making, even if it involves killing other people, is just for the greater good. And that's exactly what her character does in this movie. There are people who die because of her actions, but she thinks that ultimately for the sake of the country, this is the right thing to do. That getting her son in. And one of the things we haven't mentioned, hopefully we're not spoiling absolutely everything in this movie for anybody who has who missed this one. Um, but again, you know, it's been 15 years since this one came out. So, um, But, you know, the it's not just that she's working this hard to get her son into that VP spot. They're actually going to assassinate the newly elected president at his inauguration, or at the, the not his inauguration, the evening that he wins at this, you know, at the celebration, the evening of the election, they're going to assassinate the president. They have this lined up to assassinate him so that he will immediately be next in line. It's a little, you know, it feels a little too close to home. <laughs> Not that I think that's going to happen, but it's just like, oh, you kind of wonder what goes on behind the scenes. Oh, well, I mean, now more than ever, but yeah. yes. Yeah. And I think, that's another, did, did it occur to you at all that the idea of like, did they have to assassinate him the night of, that he was sworn in? Like, couldn't they, like, what what's the difference? He's not going to be president the next day anyway. You know what I mean? Like, why there? That's and in fact, it seemed to me like a very bad idea to I assassinate did. him that prematurely. I'm I like, so need that guy to get inaugurated. Yes. <laughs> I actually wondered what the I wondered if there wasn't some loophole thing there where like, you know, because he wasn't actually elected, would they redo the election or something? I don't know what they would do. Right. You know, there was one other plot point that kind of threw me off was right at the beginning. When you see Denzel Washington for the first time, he's this clean cut soldier speaking to a Boy Scout troop uh -huh. and all seems well. And then one of his. um 
one of his soldiers has followed him to this event. It's Jeffrey Wright, and he's a mess. And he he catches Denzel Washington outside of this outside of this talk and and says, "Are you having dreams?" And Denzel Washington basically, you know, denies that he's having dreams, but kind of gives this guy an ear because he was uh, one of his men. And but then as the movie unfolds. You know, we see a file on Denzel Washington where he's been diagnosed with, with you know, PTSD and paranoia. And you see him, and this is all a result of the brainwashing, of course, but you see him at the grocery store buying cup of noodles and nodos. So this is a man who's not sleeping and also has terrible nutrition. And I just couldn't connect the dots. Right. I was like, he did one, one shot, just one tiny frame of him pre-Boy Scout talk where I could see that not all things were well. Yeah, I can see that. But because I, it didn't track for me. I was like, okay, this guy thinks he's fine, but oh no, just kidding. He's actually having all these problems, but not telling anybody. Right. Yeah. So I had some, I had some plot questions for sure that I was like, meh. This this was a hot property when it was when it was going on, as you might imagine. Manchurian Candidate, the original, was you know a very big movie, and a lot of people were, especially at the time. I mean, you can imagine that mostly left leaning Hollywood was interested in this story in like post nine eleven uh, George Bush, you know George W. Bush era times, and kind of the the metaphors that would bring out, um, you know, again about the old war chest, basically, and. Um, so he mentioned, uh, Jonathan Demi mentioned uh, that Denzel was already attached to it by the time it got to him. Um, Denzel was already like committed to be starring in it. And um, he said that um, he met with Meryl and he, he said about a dozen other actresses um, from her era. He said basically all the great actresses of her generation were going for this part. Um so it could have been anybody, you know, I, I have in my head ideas of who that list probably included, but he said he got together with about 12 dozen other actresses and like talked about the script and talked about the character. And, you know, so there were, there was a lot of competition. Same with the Liev Schreiber uh, role. He said that basically everybody in his generation. So I imagine that's like all the Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's out there were, were going for this role. And Liev Schreiber was not particularly well known at this point. Um, and, uh, you know, so he he got this role just entirely on his own, you know, talent and his approach to the character. How did you feel about him in this movie? Well, I just love him in general. But honestly, I think he ca- he he does this. He has this duality where there's like this kindness and there's this innocence to him. Uh-huh. In his performance, but then also something quite sinister, and he layers those two things without confusing them, which is, I think, really remarkable. Yeah. So I loved him in this part. Yeah, I totally bought it. I'm I'm with you. I feel like um, there are. I I feel like this movie. It's we've now done two of these in a row, maybe more than that, but we've specifically talked about this now with Into the Woods, and I, I'm going to say it about this one too. I feel like casting was pretty much perfect top to bottom. Like yeah. they got the best people to do this movie. Um, 
And I don't think there's a weak link here. Like everybody is just really good in this. I also want to say Kimberly Elise is really great. I think as that FBI officer, I totally bought her. So, so did I. She was great. Yeah. Um, and I just thought Leah Schreiber was really good in this movie too. That scene where he's where he's crying and you know like he does that like single tear thing. That is you know I mean it's. Yeah. And I mean, I know it's movie magic, like they can do things to make you do that. But also, like, it's just impressive when people can do that. Um, there is a scene that um, I, I thought was really interesting. It's actually the scene where um, where Denzel's character and Liev's character have, I think it's lunch. He, he says, you know, are you hungry? And, you know, they go upstairs and have this kind of like lunch in a conference room. Do you remember that scene where he's kind of like first? Yeah really telling him what you know what he thinks is going on and one of the things that they they made a choice to do was it's basically just in a conference room i forget even what kind of building it is that they're in but it's it's like a basically just like a standard conference room if you were in an office you know but the windows are kind of like this opaque there's like a blue color to it so you can't really see it's not like glass where you can see exactly what's going on the outside but there are these people walking by who are wearing, uh, you know, like colored shirts and everything. And it's just like more of that, like mind game stuff where like everything that you're seeing is, I don't know, there's like colors seem different. It's almost like you are taking some of those like anti, you know, whatever anti stuff that they're medication that they're taking. Denzel's character is hooked on no dose. He's taking a lot of caffeine. Um, and, so I don't know. There's, I just, I like so much about how this was shot, I think too. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's really well done. I, uh, you just, you, Jonathan Demi is such a pro. He's mm. really a brilliant director. I'm taking a look at my rankings. Ah, where this sits for Jonathan Demi, just as a, as a point of reference was before this, he made the truth about Charlie, which I think was an action movie with like Mark Wahlberg. Then oh, yeah. this, and then after this, he did Rachel getting married with Anne Hathaway, which there, there, you know, he'd done like a lot of music videos and she, he, he works with Neil Young a lot. Um, but he had done a couple other things in between, but in terms of like major movies, um, that's kind of where it's at for him. But those are movies that are very, very different from each other, you know? Yeah. The truth about Charlie, isn't that a remake of Charade? Yeah, that is a remake. Is that what it is a remake of? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So, so I guess he was... Yeah, he was doing some remakes at, at that point. Um, where this sits for Meryl is in between. She had just done Angels in America. Um, and then after this, she did Lemony Snicket's, which she just has a small part in. And then after that, did Prime. So again, speaking of diversity, like those wow. four movies are completely different from each other. Yeah, totally. That is crazy. So since this is one of your favorites, where do you rank it on performances for her? Um, I, I have to pull it up, but I think I put it, yeah, I put it number 10. I couldn't really put it higher than that because, you know, as much as I love it, I don't think ultimately if I'm being like realistic about it, I don't think it's necessary. So like my, my top 10 now are Silkwood postcards from the edge, the post big little lies, Julie and Julia, the hours, devil wears Prada adaptation, Kramer and Kramer and Manchurian candidate. I couldn't put it like the number nine is meant is Kramer versus Kramer, which she won a freaking Oscar for. I couldn't really put it above that, you know? Yeah. But 
you know, I did, I, I wanted it to crack the top 10. I'm sure it won't stay in the top 10 cause we haven't done like Sophie's choice yet, but you know, I do love this performance a whole lot. And then for movies, um, I put it a little bit lower. I like this movie a lot, but I, I put it at number 19. Um, it's kind of similar. I, I didn't feel like I could put it above something like Mary Poppins returns or devil wears Prada ultimately as a movie. There are some things about it that, you know, are, um, tricky uh, to rank but you know it's not a perfect movie i just love so much about it it's a, it, this one and the river wild are i think probably the two that or, or postcards from the edge to a certain degree too are ones that like if i'm going to watch a meryl street movie just to enjoy it it's probably mm -hmm. one of those three yeah yeah fair totally fair we have very similar rankings yeah where where does it sit for uh, performances for you i have her in 10 as well okay in between hours and river wild um, yeah, so I've got the post Julie and Julia Devil Wears Prada postcards from the edge adaptation Big Little Lies season two out of Africa Kramer versus Kramer the hours Manchurian candidate. I'm glad you liked it as much. This one held up. Yeah, you know, her performance in this. I just yeah. think she walks the line so beautifully. And um, well, I just believe her. I just yeah. really hate her guts. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where would you put it in terms of as a movie? I have it lower as well. I have it between the river and wild and it's complicated at 20. Okay. It's interesting looking at the performance list. So hard. This is hard business, man. Yeah. These are very <laughs> scientific rankings we're doing, you know? Yeah. I really though, I don't for her, her performance in Julie and Julia just, like struck a chord with me. It's not the best movie, but her performance in it is just still hanging in there as one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, it's such a varied career. She's played so many different types of roles. It's not just, you know, it, different genres, all of that. But I mean, like so many just different people that it's really, yeah. it's hard to assess, you know, which we've talked about many times before. It's, it's silly and it's arbitrary and uh, mostly meaningless. It's just kind of a way for us to kind of, you know, track these things really. But um, what would you say in terms of, do you have a favorite scene from Manchurian Canada? They're really all so good. I won't, I hate to say that it's my favorite scene because it's wildly disturbing, but that sort of final scene between her and Leah Schreiber alone, mm -hmm. where, I mean, she spends the whole movie just powerhousing, right? She's flexing her political muscles. She's working angles. She's negotiating. She's coercing people. And then you have this moment in private with her and her son where she is still like coercing and manipulating him, but she takes this very, she takes this very um, like sort of sweet, soft, subtle manipulative route instead of the tactic she's been using in, in the rest of the film. And it is wildly creepy. And then the last shot of that scene where she is basically about to make out with her own son. And you're like, ooh, 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 ooh. Yep. They, this is so disturbing. As, uh, as you may or may not know, this is based on a book. And in the book, the incestuous side of things is... A, a, way more heightened there's like a bed there's a bed scene there's like a love scene in the book 
between the two. Um, in the original movie, the 1960 version, I want to say um, it's just that they couldn't get away with the kiss at the time. And so they didn't. Uh, but it was just kind of like, you know, the shadows and the camera just kind of pulled away. And uh, they were saying in the commentary for this one that they really did struggle with it of thinking, is this going too far? You know, is this, have we seen this kind of thing too much? Is taking the incest angle not an interesting choice right now? Um, you know, have we just seen enough of this? And so for a long time, I guess they had removed the cut, uh, or I mean, they had removed the the kiss. But then they found that for the most part, like leaving it in wasn't really like scandalous. Like it achieved what you're talking about, which is like creepy, but that's the intent of it. Like that's what we're supposed to feel about it. I think it took it, I think because it's not very revealing and it's something that's, it's almost like a, it's all, it's a reveal almost mm-hmm. um, that it, I think it serves the story in that, it, it helps you in that moment realize the depths of her insanity. Right. Which is, which is just useful in that sort of climactic moment in the film. Yep. So I, I'm glad they left it in there. Yeah. I also, I don't know why, but I'm equally creeped out by her rubbing her son's naked chest as I am with the like kiss. Yeah. Yeah. The whole scene is very disturbing. <laughs> And it's supposed to, uh, you know, but That's like, yeah. it's so disorienting because you haven't seen them in that, in, in, in that it would be disorienting and horrible anyway, but you, you haven't seen them in that framework in the film before. They're always in an official capacity right? up to that point. And so it's very disorienting. Right. And I, I think it's another scene where like, obviously, yeah, she's, in, she's incredible in that. And Leo Schreiber, I'm not, I don't remember if he even says a word in that scene or not, but the look on his face, um, that like plastered on smile is again, like so strange. And so like, what an interesting choice. And, um, yeah, there's just a lot going on in there. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good, uh, that was not the scene that I thought you might pick as your favorite scene. I was going to ask you about that. That was going to be my last question was how you felt about that. Yeah, I don't know if I want to call it my favorite scene, but it did stand out quite prominently for me. I think probably like if I'm looking for a true favorite scene, it's when she has, um, she's used her son as a weapon and the guys from Global Manchurian have come to see her and are basically chiding her for taking matters into her own hands. And I just love her in that scene. She just lets them have it. Is that the, what happened to all the men? Scene? Yes. My she, father, he just did what needed to be done. Yeah. That speech was pretty good. She improvised that line. Did she? What happened to all the men? She improvised that. Um, <laughs> so happy. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's mine too. I, I, you know, it's interesting because that scene, I, I really, I've seen this movie enough times over the years that like, I remember that scene very distinctly. I remember that line for some reason or another. It, that line just stuck out as like, you know, what an interesting, <laughs> it's so against like what she has spent her whole life working towards. I don't know. It's, it's just a funny line really. Okay. Um, but, um, you know, I guess the, the one thing that could, 
I don't know the the performance. If you look at the whole performance, the way she starts the movie, you know, she's coming into the scene and Liev Schreiber is basically upset with her, uh, you know, saying that he that she drove a wedge between him and Vera Farmiga's character, and she, you know, is kind of just like a little bit more calm in that scene. Is like it's okay if you think that. I'm just gonna let you know, like a little bit more, like just do what you need to do, say what you need to say. It's fine. I can take it. So she kind of starts and ends that way. And the, yeah. in the middle, she's just this like powerhouse. Again, that alpha energy of like owning every single room that she walks into. But she starts and ends it, this movie, in a completely different way. And um, I will say that those scenes where she's owning the room, they're all great, but they're also all kind of the same in a way, yeah. you know? Um, you know, it's just the circumstances of who she's speaking to are different. Um, I, I love every single one of those scenes, but yeah, you know, that's, it's kind of like what her, it's her character's motivation is very well established at that point, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, no, I really like this one. I'm glad, I'm glad you like this one too. I was definitely curious to see if this one was going to, uh, I could I could see this one going the other way because this one is not you know it, it sits pretty squarely in the middle of you know like her rankings you know according to IMDb and everything. Um, we should mention a few of the other things that we normally talk about. I'm going to try to pull up the the budget for this movie was pretty big. Uh, it was eighty million dollars, almost a hundred million dollars for this movie. Um, oh. Gross in the U.S. was 65 million. Worldwide was about 96. So it made about you know 16 million. So it wasn't a huge hit by any stretch. Came out July 30th, 2004. Um, so you know was a summer tentpole movie, which might have been one of the one of the reasons why you know it wasn't um, bigger than it was. Uh, she was nominated for a Golden Globe uh, for Best Actress, or yeah, Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role, and also a BAFTA. She was not nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, I want to pull up um, who the nominees were. I believe, if I remember correctly, that year she lost at the Golden Globes to Natalie Portman, I think, one for Closer. And the only reason I, re- I kind of know that is... I remember that she lost to Natalie Portman at one point because I have this memory of her. She then presented later in the show and she started presenting by saying, congratulations, Natalie. And she, you know, in that like very sarcastic way that got a pretty big laugh. Um, (laughs) And I, I think this was the year that that happened. Um, So best supporting actress and nominees that year for the Oscars were uh, Natalie Portman for Closer, Sophie Oconito for Hotel Rwanda, Virginia Madsen for Sideways, Laura Linney for Kinsey, and Kate Blanchett won for The Aviator. Oh, that was a good performance. Yeah, as Kate Hepburn. Yeah. So um, it wasn't nominated for, it wasn't nominated for any Oscars. It was just nominated for Golden Globe and, and BAFTA that year. It won a few other things, but you I know. I can see that. I mean, I can see that. It was such a, it truly really is an ensemble film in some ways. And so I don't think, I don't think enough of them got screen time to really get the notice with the exception of Denzel Washington. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there, there's something to be said about that, the, sort of the choppiness of the film. 
Mm-hmm. I can see why it didn't get as much traction as it more normally would. Yeah. Um, in terms of kind of rating, uh, in terms of rating this movie, uh, you know, or looking at one star reviews for this one. Um, <laughs> well, I found this one's, I guess it's well written, but it is kind of funny. Read, read your So, um, Jeff Gramney, August 17, 2004. The, the title of it is Meryl, You're No Angela Lansbury. Oof. Yeah, which is hilarious. No, she's not, but she is Meryl Streep. <laughs> um, it says, I won't read the whole thing, but um, he says, uh, while the 2004 remake of The Manchurian Candidate is ensemble acting at its finest, Meryl Streep seems to be having a bit too much fun, fun playing the villainous Eleanor Prentice Shaw. She doesn't have the same blood-curdling constitution as did Angela Lansbury. And then she says, I'll, or he says, I'll skip forward. When she showers Liam Schreiber with overly affectionate kisses and hugs, one again suspects Meryl was having a bit too much fun on camera with someone she finds quite attractive. Don't we all in real life? Wow. I'm like, um... First of all, do you know how scripted movies work? Because those weren't her choices. Right. <laughs> I was like, it's in the script, buddy. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I feel like this is just a movie that um, the most of the one star reviews that I looked at, the common thread was that it was people who were upset that this was remade, who, yeah. who felt like, you know, it didn't need to be remade and you know people who are attached to that like i i get that you know i don't necessarily feel that way about this one i don't feel like the original is so amazing that it shouldn't be touched um but you know i can respect somebody who who would rather have a you know a new original something um so that that's fine i can agree with that i i think um there's i don't know there just isn't somebody who who said something completely ridiculous that I found that I thought was really funny to read. So um, I think we can continue on. Um, so let's see. Uh, what is the next movie that we're doing, Meryl? Let's do Defending Your Life. Okay. So the next three movies that we can tell, actually we can tell you the next four episodes that we're going to do. We're going to do Defending Your Life, then uh, First Do No Harm, then Music of the Heart, then an Angela Bassett tribute. So uh, we'll keep those coming. Let's do our other segments here. Uh, so last time, our Six Degrees person was Emilio Estevez. Uh, did you think of anything for Emilio Estevez? No. <laughs> but I, I honestly, I didn't even try. But I, it can't be that hard. Can it be hard? There, there are a few. Um, it's, I don't think he's the easiest person to do that with, but. No, he's not. I keep thinking of like St. Elmo's fire. Surely there's a connection there. There probably is. I've got one. I've got one. Mission impossible with yes. Tom Cruise, lion for lambs. Also John Voight from this movie. Yeah. 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 That was, that was one of the ones that I was going to do. The other, um, one uh oh shoot i'm gonna forget what it was oh uh bobby you know that movie that he did about bobby kennedy there are a couple connections in that one um sharon stone is in that movie she was just in the laundromat with marijuana that really funny scene 
Uh, Lindsay Lohan is also in Bobby. She was in Prairie Home Companion with Meryl. Um, anything. Anyway, um, there are a few others too. I uh, The reason I thought of Emilio Estevez is I recent I saw, I think, probably the most recent movie that he did, which is a, a not very good movie called The Public, which is about uh, the public library system in New York City. And it's just, it's not very good. I wouldn't recommend it. it um, but Alec Baldwin is in that movie with him who, and she, you know, was just in It's Complicated. So there are a few outsiders with Tom Cruise. Yes, yes. I I figured there was probably something in the outsiders too. Um, yeah. So, what about uh, movies we wish Meryl was in? Movies we wish Meryl was in. Just like every movie at this point. Just <laughs> like <laughs> I like see a show with a child star, and I'm like, I wish Meryl Streep played that part. So nothing specific this week. Um, no, not not since not since my not since my Captain Marvel. Yeah, there you go. That was a good one. That can count for two. Um, I'm going to stick with the uh, Jonathan Demi. She did work with Jonathan Demi again. Jonathan Demi also directed Ricky and the Flash. Um, but one, um, I was kind of just thinking, you know, uh, I wonder if he did anything. And I was thinking about his his body of work and. What about Silence of the Lambs? She would have made an interesting Clarice Starling. She would have. Yeah, she totally would have. Maybe would, a little too old at the time. Is she is she that far off from, from Jodie Foster? Age-wise? I think they're about a de- I want to say they're a decade apart. Okay, Jodie Foster was born in 62. I'm looking this up here. I guess she might have been a little bit older. I guess I didn't, I didn't think of... Clarice is being like, I didn't feel like the age was necessarily a hugely important. Yeah, you're right. They are about 13 years. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, she would have been. Yeah, yeah, you're probably right. She probably would have been a little bit too old for it. But um, and especially because the idea of us like putting Meryl Streep in roles, like regardless of when the film was made. Right. So like I would have loved to have seen Meryl Streep play Clarice Starling. She would have been phenomenal. Well, and, you know, it's it's also one of those things, too, where, like, the age of that character in, um, you know, other incarnations. So in the movie actual Hannibal, then Julianne Moore played it. I'm guessing Julianne Moore was younger than Jodie Foster was in the original. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. there was a little bit of, um, you know, kind of, like, fluidness. They're actually making a, a TV series this coming season. There's a new pilot um, I think it's called Clarice, but it's it's about Clarice Starling. Did you ever watch Hannibal with uh, Hugh Dancy and Matt Michelson? I watched a few episodes of it. Was that any good? It is truly phenomenal. It is so dark, though. Yeah. I mean, and it really, it's, it's a slow burn. So that, like, first season is good, but it's hard to watch. Mm-hmm. And it is it is some really really quality writing and acting. I highly recommend you watch it. It's just really tough. It's tough. It's tough to watch. I remember there being because that was also network TV. That was like NBC or something. Yeah. I remember there being at the time when it was on um, some people who felt like they were really pushing the boundaries of like what network TV was doing. They really were. Um, I'll check that out because I think I do. Um, I think I do have access to see that. I think that's on, you know, one of the streaming platforms. Um, I've been curious. That one, to be honest, I don't know why I feel like there was um, a lot of similarities, but 
That was on at roughly the same time as there was a show on Fox called The Following with Kevin Bacon, which was about like cult leaders and pursuing. And for some, I mean, that's different enough. But at the same time, like those felt very similar to me. And I kind of, I I watched The Following when that was on. um, And I just kind of didn't really pay much attention to Hannibal because it felt like too samey to me at the time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, I have been curious because I, I have heard, I mean, I've only heard good things about the show Hannibal. So um, anyway, um, yeah, cool. Well, I guess that does it for today. Yeah, cool. Two down, three to go. Yeah. Oh, who's our six degrees person for next week? Oh, yes. Thank you. We would have done that <laughs> twice in one week. <laughs> I know. I almost, I almost was like, let's do Jeffrey Wright and then realized he's in this movie. So that won't work. <laughs> Well, we, you know, um, I did, I, because I had asked you if you had thought of somebody and then, um, I just kind of, again, I looked at something that's in the room and I was like, well, I could use that. I can do it in my head, but we could also say, except for not the same connection that we talked about today. So we could do the same thing. We could say Jeffrey Wright, except for this. He was also in Angels in America with Meryl, I think. Oh yeah. I forgot about that. I'm excited to see that too. Yeah. That's another one that in terms of heaviness, that's another one that falls in the category with uh, Holocaust and so Holocaust, Angels in America, and like Sophie's Choice at the end. It's gonna be bleak. That that is one thing I I, I was thinking at some point we need to like strategically plan out when to we have to do some of those at some point because there's a few that we gotta you know that we gotta just buckle up and do one of those i mean we got the deer hunter out of the way that was another one that was kind of in that same category so we've done you know we've done that one there's there's a couple more though that won't be a laugh riot that's for sure yeah we're gonna have to like my dad my dad says my dad likes to call them hammer movies. I took my parents to see Atonement in the theater because I thought it was beautiful. And my dad came out of there and he's like, God, I have to go get a hammer. We're like, what? Why? And he's like, well, I got to hit, hit my thumb with it to make myself feel better. And ever since then, ever since then, we've just called them hammer movies. Uh-huh. We need our own sets of hammers for those. Yeah. Yeah, I think we just spread them out, you know, with the with the remaining like lighter ones, we'll have to be careful about not not leaving them all uh, for the end. Because, yeah, that last we'll just like put off doing those last ones for sure. But anyway, we've gotten off track. Do you have anybody in mind for this for the next six degrees? Chris Hemsworth. Have we done Chris Hemsworth? Um, I don't think so. I remember talking about Chris Hemsworth at some point because I don't outside of the Ghostbuster I shouldn't say this because then maybe there's connections there I don't know that I've really seen him in anything except for the Ghostbusters movies so oh really I don't think so I don't feel like I really know who he is (laughs) he also has a brother who's like the same person right (laughs) um he has an older brother who's on Westworld okay and he has a younger brother, Liam, who... Um, there's three of them? There's three of them. Liam, Liam has not made it into the Marvel Universe as of yet. He was... The, the, the younger one was Mary Miley Cyrus. Okay. Chris Hemsworth is Thor. He just had a film come out on Netflix called Extraction. Oh, yeah. I've heard about that. That's supposed to be, that's supposed to be like one of their most watched movies. It is. Yeah, it's on track, I think, to become their most watched movie, which is crazy. Mm. He's he's interesting. I like him a lot. 
Okay. Well, let this will be a good challenge for me because I have to like figure out who this guy is and then go from there. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, Zach, I love it. <laughs> well, it's it's partially because there's more than one of them. You know, it's the brother thing, but it's also the Marvel movie. You know, he's established as one of those guys. Yeah. So, Do you uh, like, um, Taika Waititi. Yeah. I thought Jojo Rabbit was beautiful. Yeah, okay. So Jojo Rabbit, What We Do in the Shadows, so brilliant. Uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, so gorgeous. Really beautiful. So he picked up and did the latest Thor installment for Marvel, um, Thor Ragnarok, with Kate Blanchett, obviously Chris Hemsworth, and the whole Marvel crew. But mm-hmm. as a standalone movie, it is just fun. Because okay. So funny. Taika Waititi's humor is sort of infiltrated into it, and he and Chris Hemsworth just work really beautifully together. Um, so it's just a really fun movie. I would recommend it if you are just looking for some mindless fun. Sure. And Kate Blanchett, obviously, it's like one of Kate Blanchett's fantastic performances because she's a goddess. Yeah. Yeah, she's great and everything. I do remember actually one of the reasons we talked about him because uh, it was after I have seen him in something else, The Men in Black. Oh, yeah. Tessa Thompson. And yeah, because yeah. I saw that and I think we talked we kind of got up sidetracked about him because I wasn't crazy about him in that movie. And I thought she was really good, if yeah. I remember correctly. She's also in Thor Ragnarok. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's connections there I can already think of. So we'll we'll be all right with this one. Um <laughs> That is a director I want Meryl Streep to work with. Take a Watiti. Yes, please. Uh, oh, that'd be good. Cool. All right. Well, this was a fun one. Thanks, Meryl. Thank you. And well, then we will reconvene tomorrow for Defending yes. Life. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. We'll see you soon, everybody. Bye. That's all.